6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 14 through 16. Methuselah becomes the oldest man in the Bible. God is, and the, and the verse that you might offset that with is 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9, that God is not willing that any should perish. Okay, now we're going to get into Enoch's prophecy, specifically as quoted by Jude, and we're going to learn fourth. And by the way, it's interesting that the prophecy is of the Lord's second coming, not his first. We're not dealing in, in Enoch's prophecy with the cross directly, the suffering servant, the, and all of that. We're talking about his second coming, as we call it. Now we're going to learn four things. We know the Lord's coming is sure. We know who will accompany him. We know the purpose of his coming, and we know the result of his coming. All this out of Jude's, Jude's uh, quoting of Enoch's prophecy. Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with his holy myriads. That's what it says. I'd like to say saints, but that's not what it really says. With his holy myriads. The first thing is, we, let me get getting ahead of myself. We know the Lord's coming is sure, and the reason we do is because it's, this prophecy is expressed in the past tense. We see that all the time. The book of Revelation, John describes these wild things in the past tense. Or present perfect, it's done, I mean, it's behind. The idiom that the Lord uses, the Holy Spirit uses, is to write it as history. Yes, it's writ history written in advance, but it has something very similar to history, and that is you can't change it. You can't change the Civil War, the Declaration, that's past, it's history. These prophecies are written the same way. These aren't contingent Hey, you guys, if you do this, I'll do this. This isn't, the, this isn't the preaching of Jonah to Nineveh. Forty days and comes destruction. And of course, Nineveh repents and Jonah pouts because he didn't want him to repent. This is not a conditional thing. It is a certainty. And this, this shows up in the, in the linguistic structure of it. Nothing can change it. And Philippians 3.21 highlights this. He's able to subdue all things to himself. And that's what's going on here. So that's Adam Wayne. We know it's sure. The next thing is who's going to accompany him? We have a lot of confusion about that. If you quote Jude saying, gee, the Jude says that when the Lord comes, he comes with 10,000 10, of his saints, you're on shaky ground. Because what it really says is that he will come with his holy myriads. Myriads, that's a bunch, okay? Now, we will find passages, I won't take the time right now, but Zechariah 14.5, Revelation 19.14, and Daniel 7.10 says the same thing, his myriads. Now, Moses describes ten thousands of his holy ones in Deuteronomy 33, 2. And we know from Acts 7, 53 and Galatians 3, 19 that those references include angels. So we're, we know that he's coming with myriads of something, and we know for sure that they include 
his holy angels. And also, Matthew 25, 31 describes Christ returning with all the holy angels. So Zechariah, Revelation, Daniel, Deuteronomy, Galatians, Acts 7, Matthew 25, they all demonstrate that when he returns, he's coming with a bunch of angels. However, Colossians 3, 4 and 1 Thessalonians 3.13 are the two main authorities which point out that we're with, we're with him. So it's going to be quite a group. You might want to look at that. Just uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And 1 Thessalonians 3.13. To the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. 1 Thessalonians 3.13. Now we rank above the angels. If you recall 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, we shall judge, you know, not that you will judge angels. So you can run with that. So we know who's coming. There are lots of angels and the saints together, both. Now, the next thing is, what's the purpose of his coming? It's interesting that the first and the last prophecy given through man focuses on the second coming in judgment. The first prophecy by Enoch and the last prophecy in the book of uh, Revelation 22.20 focuses on the second coming, coming in judgment. He will come to bring judgment. The word in the Greek is crisis. Now turn to Hebrews 9.26-28. Hebrews 9, starting at verse 26. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the ages hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Coming to bring, born unto man, what's dying? And after this, the crisis in the Greek. Now, that word, crisis, is used of Sodom in Luke 10, 14. We all know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's crisis. Hebrews 10, 27, a certain fearful looking for crisis. And 2 Peter 3, 7 speaks the day of crisis of ungodly men. So the point I want to get, the use of that word is the judgment of the unsaved. Okay? Now, why am I making a big thing of this? I'd like you to turn to John 5. Up till now we've been talking about the word crisis, meaning this kind of judgment, right? John chapter 5, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, when the Lord wanted him, emphasize something, he said, I say unto you. When he want to double underline it, he'd say, verily, I say unto you. This one, he says, verily, verily, I say unto you. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Doesn't say you're going to get it. it isn't awarded to you after death at the pretty gates. You have it now. Hath everlasting life and shall not 
come into crisis, into judgment, but the, the Greek word is crisis, but it's passed from death unto life. Okay? So the believer, no believer, will ever come into crisis. Lots of authorities. I'll use John 5.24 specifically. Are we together so far? Now, you say, wait a minute, Chuck. There's Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5 where the, where the believers before the judgment seat of Christ, right? Different word. That's the Bema seat of Christ. The Bema seat. The judgment seat, the crisis, I think we've got a flavor for. The Bema seat was that judge's seat at the end of a race that passes out the rewards. In the Greek's a different word. It's a judgment seat like you go up to get your silver, bronze, gold, medal, whatever, in the Olympic idiom, if I may. The word in the Greek, the Bema seat, is a term that I, I believe comes out of the athletic community. It's getting rewards for your deeds. And when in Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10 and so on, the word there is the Bema seat, different deal. In the English, you both say judgment, different kind of judgment. That's an unfortunate term because we lump them together. Now, why am I making a big thing of this? For two reasons. Because of John 5.24, which is a compulsory required memory verse, there will be a quiz. But also because... You need to know that as a believer, you do not come into crisis. In the book of Enoch, the apocryphal book, it quotes Enoch as saying that he comes with myriads of his saints to execute judgment on them. And if you understand the scripture, you know that's not true. It's fraud. It's false. The book of Enoch was written by a false prophet. That's not what Enoch prophesied, because God is not going to contradict himself. So it's a simple, I love these things because they save you acres of paperwork in a library wandering through the Apocrypha. And I've shared with you, I'm so endeared to John for chapter 12, where he, t he points out that Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 were written by the same Isaiah. Do you have any idea the money I spent on commentaries and the derailment of my, my Christian walk on the Deutero-Isaiah thing? I could have saved years of my life and uh, uh, a lot of agony. If I just read John 12 carefully, you don't have to worry about two Isaiahs. There were no two Isaiahs. That's, yes, I'm trying to think of a word I can use here in the Bible. Balderdash is probably a, a little more polite than what I was thinking of. Yes. Thank you. Vocabulary is so important. Okay. Now, who's going to be judged? It says all, right? It says they're all going to be judged, okay? We know he cometh to judge the earth. That's from Psalm 96, verse 13. We know he comes to judge all nations. That's Joel 3, verse 12, and Matthew 25, 32. He comes to judge all nations with their cities. That's Matthew 11, 22, and Matthew 12, 41. I'm not looking these up because I think this is familiar ground. If not, it ought to be. Yeah. Um, he comes to judge every man, living or dead. 2 Timothy 4.1 and 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7, 8, and 9. He comes to judge the fallen angels. We're not unfamiliar with that because we just studied it, but the authority is Isaiah 24, verse 21. And he also comes to judge the demons, Matthew 8.29. 
So you can build a list. It just includes about everything. It expressly includes about everything you can think of. Now, the next question is, who's going to be the judge? Who is going to be the judge? Well, back to John 5, verse 22. A couple of verses before the one I had you memorize. All right. Yeah. For the Father judgeth no man. Really? But hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the, has that burden. What's he going to judge them by? How are they judged? Let's turn to Romans 2. Truth, deeds, and my gospel will be the summary of this. Romans chapter 2, verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them who commit such things. And it goes on to elaborate on this and gets down to verse 6. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. You want to be judged by works, you'll get your chance. Exactly. No, thank you. Is right on. Down to verse 16. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. By the way, verses 7 through 15 is a parenthetical remark. So if you have trouble with Paul, that's one of the reasons he, he really, he does it. Now, what's the result of the Lord's coming? All the ungodly will be convicted of all their works of ungodliness. Yeah, you know, that's that's where you know even even in the English it seems kind of um, you, you know Jude is hammering away he's, he's putting a lot of nails into this coffin he's saying to execute judgment upon all and to convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. <laughs> we could concatenate a whole bunch of the judgment passages here Matthew twenty five where. The Lord says, uh, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire. Revelation 20, where the books are opened and they're all judged according to their works. And then 2 Peter 3, 7, where the heavens and earth are reserved for fire. Those are all passages we have looked at before, um, which they have. Un and it's interesting here, the ungodly are the category. All of them have their ungodly deeds in which they've, in which they've ungodly committed. The deeds and the way they did them are both ungodly. What makes them ungodly is the intent. God looks at the heart. We all know that, right? How do we know that? How do we know that God looks at the heart? What's our authority? 1 Samuel 16, 7. Always intrigued that you have to reach to Samuel to nail that one down. And he's also going to judge the hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's interesting to me that of all the things all the ungodly deeds, that this particular one is also singled out for special mention. And that's consistent with the other things all the way through Jude in terms of their speaking against, speaking against, speak railing, etc. Big issue. A big issue. Matthew 12, 36 reminds us that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Boy, am I glad that I'm not going to be at the judgment. I cling to Matthew 5, 24, the idle words. Don't ever ask my wife. She'd give you a list. Um, I have many things, but that's one of the ones that I'm sure would be, that uh, I'm sure took some extra scrubbing, you know. Every idle word that makes you speak. Now, the contrary to that, the opposite of that, so to speak, what is the characteristic identity of the Antichrist in Scripture? Big mouth. 
Yeah, if I wasn't going to call him Antichrist, that isn't really a scriptural label for him. I call him Mr. Big Mouth. We have him in Revelation 13. We have him in Daniel 8. Every place you see him in Old and New Testament, he's always uttering preposterous things against the Most High. He is always shooting off his mouth. Of all the things he must do, and I'm sure what he does, there's a long list of, of acts, offensive acts that he does. But it's interesting that the Scripture highlights that one as idiomatic of. Okay, well, that's, that's uh, a large part of Enoch. But let me uh, mention some other things about Enoch, or at least his role in prophecy, since we're all here really as students of prophecy in one way or another. Much is said about Noah and the ark. If we talk about Noah's ark, and I, I want to just summarize, refresh your memory and summarize some things about Noah to make some other points, so just bear with me a little bit. Noah is called by God to build this barge with which eight people are going to be saved. And I won't go into, I won't take the time now to get into why Noah and why that eight, but there's a very specific reason um, in terms of having an unblemished genealogy and so forth. God chooses out of his grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God commissions him to, make, to, to do this barge. And God has miraculously then preserved Noah, his sons, and their four wives. And by the way, don't for a minute think that Noah only had three sons. We have no reason to believe he just had three sons. Those are memorialized because they came with him. So they make this barge, and as you all know the story, the flood comes. They're miraculously preserved through the flood, and, and they continue man uh, at the end of the flood. Now, a couple of interesting things. If you and I were writing the story of Noah, the flood comes and wipes out everything else, and then the sub flood subsides, where would you land that barge? You're a God that provides. Every detail is ordained, right? So it's not going to land anywhere by accident, is it? Wherever it lands is on purpose. You and I would have a tendency, you know, the world's a mess. They're going to have to make a new start. You'd land it somewhere where they could cannibalize the structure for housing, etc. They have needs, right? The barge is deposited on one of the highest mountains in the geologically unstable area at an altitude so high they have to migrate down to live. God seems to have put the barge in a place where it was nigh impossible for them to use it, take it apart, make housing. They had to leave it to go down to lower altitudes. It's at 14,000 plus on Ararat. It's in, it's, there are a lot of conditions there that make it, even today with our technology, difficult to get at. So you wonder, that can't be there by accident. It's frozen most of the time. It's in a place that's uniquely ready to be preserved. Now you go back and you read Genesis 6, you discover when God tells Noah to build the ark, he asks him to pitch it within and without. Now you pitch a boat to make it watertight, but you don't do it inside and outside. Now why would you do it inside and outside? To preserve it. So it's designed to be preserved, it's deposited to be preserved. There's a hypothesis I'm coming to and that is, I personally believe, I'll phrase it that way, can't prove this, it's just one of my idiosyncratic notions, that the ark's role, prophetically, is not over. It was a testimony to an unbelieving world of a coming judgment back then, and it will be again. That's why it's sort of held in abeyance. The time will come when 
They finally get there, and they cut through the ice, and they bring back more physical, they have some, but more physical remnants of it. It will be a testimony to the reality of Genesis 6, the reality of Noah and that whole thing, and what it implies. It implies all kinds of things. It implies not just validity to the Genesis account. It says there is a God that intervenes in the lives of men that will hold them accountable. And on and on, all kinds of implications. Now, there's something else about Noah's Ark that I'm getting at. The word pitch, within and without, that occurs in Genesis 6, occurs all throughout the Scripture, but it's translated pitch only in that chapter. Every place else it appears in the Old Testament, it is translated atonement. There is a gigantic pun here. These eight people were preserved by atonement. And you can get into a whole thing, a typological study, that the ark is a type of whom? Of Jesus Christ, exactly. Preserving these through the judgment to become a new beginning at the end, right? Now, um, again, I don't want to take the time tonight to go through all of that, but let me leave you with one interesting one. The ark, when it comes to rest, when they leave the ark and it's all, you know, everything's neat, the Holy Spirit tells us it was the 17th day of the seventh month. Well, that's terrific. What you, you really have to dig to get this one put together. In the book of Exodus, which comes obviously much, much later, um, nine plagues have gone by, the tenth one's coming, the death of the firstborn. We have the Passover and uh, that whole, that big event. In fact, what's regarded as the birth of the nation Israel. And at that time, he makes, when the Passover is instituted in the book of Exodus, he makes that month the first of the months. So now, when is Passover? The 14th of Nisan, which is to them the first, okay, which in Genesis is the seventh. Now, if Jesus Christ is crucified on the 14th of Nisan, what happens three days later? His resurrection. You mean to tell me that God let Noah leave the ark on the third day after the 14th on the anniversary thousands of years in advance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. It's mind-blowing how the Lord orchestrates all of this. Now, what am I getting at? Well, people say, gee, is the ark a type of the believer? In a sense it is, but there's also a sense, I'm not saying that it isn't, but there's another view that, that uh, bears some merit. The ark was not removed from the judgment, it was preserved through the judgment. There's a difference between it and the church. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, I have not appointed you unto wrath, but unto salvation. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, the church is promised, I will keep you from the time of the tribulation. Not just from the tribulation, from the time of the tribulation. They're removed. Now, from that modeling, many scholars believe that Noah is, and the ark is not a type of the church of Israel being preserved through the tribulation, the believing remnant. Then where is the church? Answer, church is non-Jewish. And I'm not saying Noah is, but in the type he would be. What is the type of the church? Enoch. 
Enoch was translated, did not see death. Enoch was removed from the scene before this was played out. Okay? Now, that's one example. Another example I'm fond of using is, we all remember the famous story of the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. And we had uh, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. I'm sorry, you know Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right. The uh, uh, secular world has preserved their secular names for it. The uh, Nebuchadnezzar in his ragtime band says, hey, uh, when the music starts, you all bow down, you bow or burn, right? And these three guys say, no thanks, they don't. You all know the story out of Daniel chapter 3. To give you the context, the chapter, chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the young man, takes over. His father dies. He's general of the army, but while he's seizing, sieging uh, Jerusalem, he finds out his father dies. He's now king of Babylon, so he goes back. He inherits all these old-timers that are the staff, the soothsayers and wise men and stuff. So he has this troubled dream, and he wants to find out if these guys could cut the mustard. So he says, hey, guys, I want you to interpret my dream, but by the way, this is the fine print is, I won't tell you what you do. Tell me what the dream is and what it means. And they say, hey, no, there's no one, no man on earth can do that. He's just trying to put him to tell you. Then he explains his professional development system. He's going to cut them limb from limb and make their houses a dunghill if they don't. They can't, so the word goes out, the order is given. But that includes the whole job description. Daniel and his friends were in that job description. They said, hey, why so hasty? And they petition and get the audience with the king. And, and as you all know this thing, they, Daniel interprets the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar is blown away, quite impressed, and makes th and rewards them. Now, from d chapter 2, you can get an idea how popular Daniel and his three friends were among the, the old palace guard. And the old palace guard rig up this thing to get Nebuchadnezzar on his ego trip so that wh whoever doesn't bow down to the music is going to get uh, slaughtered, knowing full well that these faithful Jews will not do that. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <music>